Chapter 49 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Chapter 49, Part 3. The Mutual Obligations of the Popes and the Carlovingian Family form the important link of ancient and modern of civil and ecclesiastical history. In the conquest of Italy, the champions of the Roman Church obtained a favorable occasion, a specious title, the wishes of the people, the prayers and intrigues of the clergy. But the most essential gifts of the popes to the Carlovingian race were the dignities of King of France and of Patrician of Rome. Under the sacerdotal monarchy of St. Peter, the nations began to resume the practice of seeking on the banks of the Tiber their kings, their laws, and the oracles of their fate. The Franks were perplexed between the name and substance of their government. All the powers of royalty were exercised by Pepin, mayor of the palace, and nothing except the regal title was wanting to his ambition. His enemies were crushed by the valor. His friends were multiplied by his liberality. His father had been the savior of Christendom, and the claims of personal merit were repeated and ennobled in a descent of four generations. The name and image of royalty was still preserved in the last descendant of Clovis, the feeble Childeric, but his obsolete right could only be used as an instrument of sedition. The nation was desirous of restoring the simplicity of the Constitution, and Pepin, a subject and a prince, was ambitious to ascertain his own rank and the fortune of his family. The mayor and the nobles were bound by an oath of fidelity to the royal phantom. The blood of Clovis was pure and sacred in their eyes and their common ambassadors addressed the Roman pontiff to dispel their scruples or to absolve their promise. The interest of Pope Zachary, the successor of the two Gregories, prompted him to decide and to decide in their favor. He pronounced that the nation might lawfully unite in the same person the title and authority of king and that the unfortunate Childeric, a victim of the public safety, should be degraded, shaved, and confined in a monastery for the remainder of his days. An answer so agreeable to their wishes was accepted by the Franks as the opinion of a casuist, the sentence of a judge, or the oracle of a prophet, the Merovingian race disappeared from the earth, and Pepin was exalted on a buckler by the suffrage of a free people 
accustomed to obey his laws and to march under his standard. His coronation was twice performed with the sanction of the popes by their most faithful servant St. Boniface, the apostle of Germany, and by the grateful hands of Stephen III, who in the monastery of St. Denis placed the diadem on the head of his benefactor. The royal unction of the kings of Israel was dexterously applied. The successor of St. Peter assumed the character of a divine ambassador. A German chieftain was transformed into the Lord's anointed, and this Jewish rite has been diffused and maintained by the superstition and vanity of modern Europe. The Franks were absolved from their ancient oath, but a dire anathema was thundered against them and their posterity, if they should dare to renew the same freedom of choice or to elect a king, except in the holy and meritorious race of the Carlovingian princes. Without apprehending the future danger, these princes gloried in their present security. The secretary of Charlemagne affirms that the French scepter was transferred by the authority of the popes, and in their boldest enterprises they insist, with confidence, on this signal and successful act of temporal jurisdiction. In the change of manners and language, the patricians of Rome were far removed from the senate of Romulus on the palace of Constantine, from the free nobles of the Republic, or the fictitious parents of the emperor. After the recovery of Italy and Africa by the arms of Justinian, the importance and danger of those remote provinces required the presence of a supreme magistrate, he was indifferently styled the exarch or the patrician, and these governors of Ravenna, who filled their place in the chronology of princes, extended their jurisdiction over the Roman city. Since the revolt of Italy and the loss of Exarchate, the distress of the Romans had exacted some sacrifice of their independence. Yet, even in this act, they exercised the right of disposing of themselves, and the decrees of the Senate and people successively invested Charles Martel and his posterity with the honors of patrician of Rome. The leaders of a powerful nation would have disdained a servile title and subordinate office, but the reign of the Greek emperors was suspended and in the vacancy of the empire they derived a more glorious commission from the Pope and the Republic. The Roman ambassadors presented these patricians with the keys of the shrine of St. Peter as a pledge and symbol of sovereignty. With a holy banner, which it was their right and duty to unfurl in the defense of the church and city, in the time of Charles Martel and of Pepin, the interposition of the Lombard kingdom covered the freedom while it threatened the safety of Rome, and the patriciate represented only the title, the service, the alliance of these distant protectors. 
the power and policy of Charlemagne annihilated an enemy and imposed a master. In his first visit to the capital, he was received with all the honors which had formerly been paid to the exarch, the representative of the emperor, and these honors obtained some new decorations from the joy and gratitude of Pope Adrian I. No sooner was he informed of the sudden approach of the monarch than he dispatched the magistrates and nobles of Rome to meet him with the banner about thirty miles from the city. At the distance of one mile, the Flaminian Way was lined with the schools or national communities of Greeks, Lombards, Saxons, and so forth. The Roman youth were under arms, and the children of a more tender age, with palms and olive branches in their hands, chanted the praises of their great deliverer. At the aspect of the holy crosses and ensigns of the saints, he dismounted from his horse, led the procession of his nobles to the Vatican, and as he ascended the stairs, devoutly kissed each step of the threshold of the apostles. In the portico, Adrian expected him at the head of his clergy. They embraced as friends and equals, but in their march to the altar, the king or patrician assumed the right hand of the pope. Now was the frank content with these vain and empty demonstrations of respect. In the twenty-six years that elapsed between the conquest of Lombardy and his imperial coronation, Rome, which had been delivered by the sword, was subject as his own to the scepter of Charlemagne. The people swore allegiance to his person and family, and his name money was coined, and justice was administered, and the election of the popes was examined and confirmed by his authority. Except an original and self-interest claim of sovereignty, there was not any prerogative remaining, which the title of emperor could add to the patrician of Rome. The gratitude of the Carlovingians was adequate to these obligations, and their names are consecrated as the saviors and benefactors of the Roman Church. Her ancient patrimony of farms and houses was transformed by their bounty into the temporal dominion of cities and provinces, and the donation of the Exarchate was the first fruits of the conquest of Pepin. Astolphus was a sigh relinquished his prey. The keys and the hostages of the principal cities were delivered to the French ambassador, and in his master's name he presented them before the tomb of St. Peter. The ample measure of the Exarchate might comprise all the provinces of Italy which had obeyed the emperor and his vice-regent but its strict and proper limits were included in the territories of Ravenna, Bologna, and Ferrara. Its inseparable dependency was the Pentapolis, which stretched along the Adriatic from Rimini to Ancona, and advanced into the Midland country as far as the ridges of the Apennine.
In this transaction, the ambition and avarice of the popes have been severely condemned. Perhaps the humility of a Christian priest should have rejected an earthly kingdom, which it was not easy for him to govern without renouncing the virtues of his profession. Perhaps a faithful subject, or even a generous enemy, would have been less impatient to divide the spoils of the barbarian, and if the emperor had entrusted Stephen to solicit in his name the restitution of the exarchate, I will not absolve the Pope from the reproach of treachery and falsehood. But in the rigid interpretation of the laws, everyone may accept without injury whatever his benefactor can bestow without injustice. The Greek emperor had abdicated or forfeited his right to the exarchate, and the sword of Astolphus was broken by the stronger sword of the Carlovingian. It was not in the cause of the iconoclast that Pepin had exposed his person and army in a double expedition beyond the Alps. He possessed and might lawfully alienate his conquests, and to the importunities of the Greeks he piously replied that no human consideration should tempt him to resume the gift which he had confirmed on the Roman pontiff for the remission of his sins and the salvation of his soul. The splendid donation was granted in supreme and absolute dominion, and the world beheld for the first time a Christian bishop invested with the prerogatives of a temporal prince. The choice of magistrates, the exercise of justice, the imposition of taxes, and the wealth of the palace of Ravenna. In the dissolution of the Lombard kingdom, the inhabitants of the duchy of Spolato sought a refuge from the storm, shaved their heads after the Roman fashion, declared themselves the servants and subjects of St. Peter, and completed by this voluntary surrender the present circle of the ecclesiastical state. That mysterious circle was enlarged to an indefinite extent by the verbal or written donation of Charlemagne, who, in the first transports of his victory, despoiled himself of the Greek emperor of the cities and islands which had formerly been annexed to the exarchate, but in the cooler moments of absence and reflection he viewed, with an eye of jealousy and envy, the recent greatness of his ecclesiastical ally. The execution of his own and his father's promises was respectfully eluded. The king of the Franks and Lombards asserted the inalienable rights of the empire, and in his life and death, Ravenna, as well as Rome, was numbered in the list of his metropolitan cities. The sovereignty of the, of the exarchate melted away in the hands of the popes. They found in the archbishops of Ravenna a dangerous and domestic rival. The nobles and people disdained the yoke of a priest, and in the disorders of the times they could only retain the memory of an ancient claim which, in a more prosperous age, they have revived and realized. 
Fraud is the resource of weakness and cunning, and the strong, though ignorant, barbarian was often entangled in a net of sacerdotal policy. The Vatican and Lateran were an arsenal and manufacture, which, according to the occasion, have produced or concealed a various collection of false or genuine, of corrupt or suspicious, acts, as they tended to promote the interests of the Roman Church. Before the end of the 8th century, some apostolic scribe, perhaps the notorious Isidore, composed the decretals and the donation of Constantine, the two magic pillars of the spiritual and temporal monarchy of the popes. This memorable donation was introduced to the world by an epistle of Adrian I, who exhorts Charlemagne to imitate the liberality and revive the name of the great Constantine. According to the legend, the first of the Christian emperors was healed of the leprosy and purified in the waters of baptism by St. Sylvester, the Roman bishop, and never was physician more gloriously recompensed. His royal proselyte withdrew from the seat and patrimony of St. Peter, declared his resolution of founding a new capital in the east and resigned to the popes the free and perpetual sovereignty of Rome, Italy, and the provinces of the west. This fiction was productive of the most beneficial effects. The Greek princes were convicted of the guilt of usurpation, and the revolt of Gregory was the claim of his lawful inheritance. The popes were delivered from their debt of gratitude, and the nominal gifts of the Carlovingians were no more than the just and irrevocable restitution of a scanty portion of the ecclesiastical state. The sovereignty of Rome no longer depended on the choice of a fickle people, and the successors of St. Peter and Constantine were invested with the purple and prerogatives of the Caesars. So deep was the ignorance and credulity of the times that the most absurd of fables was received with equal reverence in Greece and in France, and is still enrolled among the decrees of the canon law. The emperors and the Romans were incapable of discerning a forgery that subverted their rights and freedom, and the holy opposition proceeded from a Sabine monastery, which in the beginning of the 12th century disputed the truth and validity of the donation of Constantine. In the revival of letters and liberty, this fictitious deed was transpierced by the pen of Laurentius Valla, the pen of an eloquent critic and a Roman patriot. His contemporaries of the 15th century were astonished at his sacrilegious boldness, yet such is the silent and irresistible progress of reason that before the end of the next age, the fable was rejected by the contempt of historians and poets and the tacit or modest censure of the advocates of the Roman Church. 
the popes themselves have indulged a smile at the credulity of the vulgar, but a false and obsolete title still sanctifies their reign, and by the same fortune which has attended the decretals and the Sibylline oracles, the edifice has subsisted after foundations have been undermined. While the popes established in Italy their freedom and dominion, the images, the first cause of their revolt, were restored in the Eastern Empire. Under the reign of Constantine V, the union of civil and ecclesiastical power had overthrown the tree without extirpating the root of superstition. The idols, for such they were now held, were secretly cherished by the order and the sex most prone to devotion, and the fond alliance of the monks and females obtained a final victory over the reason and authority of man. Leo IV maintained with less vigor the religion of his father and grandfather, but his wife, the fair and ambitious Irene, had imbibed the zeal of the Athenians, the heirs of the idolatry, rather than the philosophy of their ancestors. During the life of her husband, these sentiments were inflamed by danger and dissimulation, and she could only labor to protect and promote some favorite monks who she drew from their caverns and seated on the metropolitan thrones of the East. But as soon as she reigned in her own name and that of her son, Irene more seriously undertook the ruin of the iconoclasts, and the first step in her future persecution was a general edict for liberty and conscience. In the restoration of the monks, a thousand images were exposed to the public veneration, a thousand legends were inverted of their sufferings and miracles. By the opportunities of death or removal, the episcopal seats were judiciously filled the most eager competitors for earthly or celestial favor anticipated and flattered the judgment of their sovereign, and the promotion of her secretary, Tarasius, gave Irene the patriarch of Constantinople and the command of the Oriental Church. But the decrees of a general council could only be repealed by a similar assembly. The iconoclasts whom she convened were bold in possession and averse to debate, and the feeble voice of the bishops was re-echoed by the more formidable clamor of the soldiers and people of Constantinople. The delay and intrigues of a year, the separation of the disaffected troops, and the choice of Nice for a second orthodox synod, removed these obstacles, and the episcopal conscience was again, after the Greek fashion, in the hands of the prince. No more than eighteen days were allowed for the consummation of this important work. The iconoclasts appeared not as judges, but as criminals or penitents. The scene was decorated by the legates of Pope Adrian and the Eastern Patriarchs, 
the decrees were framed by the president Terratius and ratified by the acclamations and subscriptions of 350 bishops. They unanimously pronounced that the worship of images was is agreeable to scripture and reason, to the fathers and councils of the church, but they hesitate whether that worship be relative or direct, whether the Godhead and the figure of Christ be entitled to the same mode of adoration. Of the Second Nicene Council, the acts are still extant, a curious monument of superstition and ignorance, of falsehood and folly. I shall only notice the judgment of the bishops on the comparative merit of image worship and morality. A monk had concluded a truce with a demon of fornication, on condition of interrupting his daily prayers to a picture that hung in his cell. His scruples prompted him to consult the abbot. Rather than abstain from adoring Christ and his mother in their holy images, it would be better for you, replied the casuist, to enter every brothel and visit every prostitute in the city. For the honor of orthodoxy, at least the orthodoxy of the Roman Church, it is somewhat unfortunate that the two princes who convened the two councils of Nice are both stained with the blood of their sons. The second of these assemblies was approved and rigorously executed by the despotism of Irene, and she refused her adversaries the toleration which at first she had granted to her friends. During the five succeeding reigns, a period of thirty-eight years, the contest was maintained with unabated rage and various success between the worshippers and the breakers of the images. But I am not inclined to pursue with minute diligence the repetition of the same events. Nicephorus allowed a general liberty of speech and practice, and the only virtue of his reign is accused by the monks as the cause of his temporal and eternal perdition. Superstition and weakness formed the character of Michael I, but the saints and images were incapable of supporting their votary on the throne. In the purple, Leo V asserted the name and religion of an Armenian, and the idols, with their seditious adherents, were condemned to a second exile. Their applause would have sanctified the murder of an impious tyrant, but his assassin and successor, the second Michael, was tainted from his birth with the Phrygian heresies. He attempted to mediate between the contending parties, and the intractable spirit of the Catholics insensibly cast him into the opposite scale. His moderation was guarded by timidity, but his son Theophilus, alike ignorant of fear and piety, was the last and most cruel of the iconoclasts. The enthusiasm of the times ran strongly against them, and the emperors who stemmed the torrent were exasperated and punished by the public hatred. 
After the death of Theophilus, the final victory of the images was achieved by a second female, his widow Theodora, whom he left the guardian of the empire. Her measures were bold and decisive. The fiction of a tardy repentance absolved the fame and the soul of her deceased husband. The sentence of the iconoclast patriarch was commuted from the loss of his eyes to a whipping of two hundred lashes. The bishops trembled, the monks shouted, and the festival of orthodoxy preserves the annual memory of the triumph of the images. A single question yet remained, whether they are endowed with any proper and inherent sanctity. It was agitated by the Greeks of the 11th century, and as this opinion has the strongest recommendation of absurdity, I am surprised that it was not more explicitly decided in the affirmative. In the West, Pope Adrian I accepted and announced the decrees of the Nicene Assembly, which is now revered by the Catholics as the seventh in rank of the general councils. Rome and Italy were docile to the voice of their father, but the greatest part of the Latin Christians were far behind in the race of superstition. The churches of France, Germany, England, and Spain steered a middle course between the adoration and the destruction of images, which they admitted into their temples, not as objects of worship, but as lively and useful memorials of faith and history. An angry book of controversy was composed and published in the name of Charlemagne. Under his authority, a synod of 300 bishops was assembled at Frankfurt. They blamed the fury of the iconoclasts, but they pronounced a more severe censure against the superstition of the Greeks and the decrees of their pretended council, which was long despised by the barbarians of the West. Among them the worship of images advanced with a silent and insensible progress, but a large atonement is made for their hesitation and delay by the gross idolatry of the ages which precede the Reformation and of the countries both in Europe and America which are still immersed in the gloom of superstition. End of chapter 49, part 3 Recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire, USA